everybody. Uh, happy day and looking forward to sharing with you about strategies for effective communication. Um, I'm hopeful that this will help address some of the communication challenges that we all experience because whenever you get two people in a room, there's always a potential for communication challenges. And we're going to walk through some of how those things happen and then how you can address them. So today we'll be talking about types of communication. We'll be talking about understanding the communication process and where things can go wrong. And then we're going to review some specific communication situations, including managing conflict, negotiating, managing up, which is managing your boss or people senior to you, and persuasion and how to just some overview of how to work with these specific situations. Um, and then I also have some resources for you at the end. A little bit about me, uh, as, as was mentioned, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I'm a board certified business and organizational psychologist, and I do a lot of stuff. Uh, so I love teaching about this kind of thing and delighted to talk, be talking with you today. So we're gonna start with types of communication. The first type is a verbal communication. Uh, it's so I think what's most important to know about verbal communication is words mean what we agree they mean. And that seems kind of basic, but at the same time, sometimes people use words in a way that other people aren't familiar with, or a word may mean something to us that it doesn't mean to them, or that word may sound kind of hostile to us where it doesn't have the same meaning to another person who uses it. And so we infer or we make judgments based on what the words mean. But the challenge with verbal communication is we have to both agree on what those same words mean. Um, verbal communi communication can also be more effective when you also are speaking clearly and you have a tone that's appropriate for the situation, you're choosing words carefully, you have an appropriate speech rate for the situation and so on. So verbal communication isn't just about the words, it's about all of these other pieces too. And it's easy to lose sight of that because we spend kind of all day, every day talking and listening. And sometimes we forget all of these other things go into the verbal communication. And of course, the listening skills matter as well. It's not just talking. Communication is two-way street. So that means one person sharing information while the other person is actively taking it in and vice versa. So being able to listen is an incredibly important part of verbal communication. And then finally, this verbal communication can get really disrupted by the nonverbal communication. I'll talk about nonverbal communication in just a moment. So written communication, I wanted to include it here, even though we're not gonna spend time uh, too much time on written communication today. But when you are writing, the person who wants to communicate the information needs to write the message clearly for what they're looking for. And the person at the receiving end has to be able to one, actually read it, which many of you who send emails out know not everybody reads them. And then they have to be able to understand it and understanding not just the words, but of course the intent and the tone behind it. Written communication is often really helpful because it provides this record of information that you can access and go through multiple times. As any of us who have ever obsessed over writing an email know, um, you can go back to it over and over and try to parse out different meetings. And then of course, word choice is even more important because nobody has the emotions or the nonverbal cues to be able to help with interpretation. So they're stuck with only what you have on the paper or on the screen. And so we need to make sure that we choose our words carefully. 
nonverbal communication with one of my favorite nonverbal communications here from Liz Levin on 30 Rock, the fabulous eye roll. You can convey a whole bunch of information using visual cues, like your body language, making eye contact and doing a famous Liz Lemon eye roll as well. Many times this is unintentional. So this can be a challenge if you don't mean to be expressing something, but that's what's picked up by the other person. This nonverbal communication can also be interpreted differently in different cultures. So for example, if you're not looking at the person who is sharing something with you, it could mean in some cultures that you're not interested or you disagree. In other cultures, it means you're demonstrating respect. I am not aware of eye rolling meaning anything positive in any culture. So I would definitely stay away from eye rolling. Uh, at the same time, there's a lot of ways, seriously, in which nonverbal communication can really doom our message, our verbal message. So we can pick just the right words but if we're non-verbally communicating something, perhaps even unintentionally, it can really mess with the message we're trying to convey. Um, and then also it's good to use, if you're not sure about the non-verbal communication, use your verbal communication to clarify when you're not sure about what's happening and check your assumptions. And this is a nice thing to do when someone's verbal communication is not consistent with their non-verbal communication. Many times that happens at a really deep level, so we don't always catch it. Um, but when we do, it's easy enough to ask. So one of the ways I like to ask about this is to say, you know, I noticed you looking away when I was talking about this topic. Um, is there something you'd like to share with me or something you'd like to say? So that leaves it really open. It's saying, here's what I noticed. And what did you mean by that? And it could be they meant nothing, or it could be they meant something, but they don't want to talk with you about it. There's lots of options, but at least that's a way to open the conversation. Um, another way to do that is to say, you know, when we were talking the other day, you seemed to look really impatient. And I couldn't tell if you were impatient with me or if you were impatient about something else. Could you let me know what was going on? And that way it gives a person a chance to explain. So that can be really helpful. And then of course, visual communication, these visual elements like emojis and signs and avatars can really influence our understanding. In fact, for this stop, drop and roll, we all know what that means. Even if the words weren't there, we would get a sense of what that means. So both verbal and written communication can make use of these visual elements to make the information more understandable. So it's kind of like a, a mixed method situation. You have an agenda that's written and then you also have someone talking. And if you're like me, you're using your hands to emphasize a point or to send some other messages. Um, so we often get multiple forms of communication at once. And then you may want to consider how visuals could either improve understanding or ensure quicker responses. So the, the image below of uh, the, the visuals that say stop, drop, and roll can be very helpful so people will get it even more quickly than they'll get the words that are there. Um, other times um, when you're doing something online, they might have different uh, visuals for deposit a check or get your money out or whatever, so that it, it becomes a bit, a bit of a shorthand that you can use. And there may be ways to use that at work that we haven't really explored much. All right, so those are the basics on the types of communication. Again, we're gonna talk mostly about 
the verbal and nonverbal communication today. Um, writing and uh, visuals are a whole different <laughs> ballgame there. But let's talk about the communication process. So there are some steps to effective communication. Some of you may know this already, in which case it's a review and fantastic. But it helps, again, since we talk all the time, to slow it down and let's look at all the different steps that are required in effective communication so that we can think through them. Because when communication goes wrong, somehow there was some error in here. So the first is, is the information that's being provided accurate? Does it have the correct information and does is it complete? So that's kind of the first part about what's being what it is that's being communicated to the other person. Next is, is the information being delivered through the appropriate channels? We've all had the experience of having a meeting when this probably could have been handled by an email. Or maybe somebody wrote something in an email that would have been better delivered in person and face-to-face. -face. So it's hard to consider sometimes what the most appropriate channel is, but the information is most likely to be received when it's delivered through the appropriate channels. Next is, is the information actually received? Are they hearing you? Did they read the email? Did they open the memo? Did they look at it? So if it's not received, then it's not an effective communication. And I know you're not in control of whether people open the email or not, but at the same time, the communication isn't complete unless the other person actually read it or heard it. In addition to reading it or hearing it, the person who's receiving it has to properly decode it. This means that they have to understand the real message as you intended it. And this is often a place where things go wrong. Actually, all of these are places where things go wrong. Um, but here, sometimes something can be said in a way that it was interpreted very different than its original meaning was intended. Even in written communication where you think the words are the same words that we would all use at the same time to say the same thing, and that doesn't necessarily happen. Is the message complete, clear, and concise? Um, many of us have seen very, very long emails that come down to no or yes, where people want to explain all kinds of things. And we'll talk a little bit about how people like to receive information in a few moments, but ideally the message is concise. Um, I had a, a boss who wanted to know all the details and he also wanted me to keep my emails really short. So I learned to send a two-part email. Short answer, yes. Details are here. And so then he would have his option of taking a look at the short answer or the long answer. Um, if you're giving a long answer, and doing what I call building a mystery. Um, so this happened and then this happened and then that happened. And therefore, um, sometimes people don't read all that and they'll either skip to the end and miss part of what you said, or um, they just won't read it at all um, and not actually get the information you're trying to convey. And then finally, everything goes better with a little courtesy and kindness. So of course you should be courteous in how you're transmitting information so that the listener doesn't feel offended. And then any kind of discussion you have should also be courteous and diplomatic. And this is helpful. Sometimes it's hard to do when you're in a very high stakes situation or when there's an emergency, but ideally we can always communicate in a courteous and respectful way. So where do things go wrong? 
any step of this, things can go wrong and mean that the communication is not actually making it from one person to the other person. So the information either might not be correct or the inquiry might not be clear. Um, a lot of times I'll, sometimes I'll, I'll get a request and I don't actually understand what it is they want me to do. And so if that if I'm not clear on what it is they're asking me for, that's not effective communication. Uh, second, things can go wrong if it's not delivered through appropriate channels. Getting an email instead of a personal phone conversation uh, can be a problem depending on the nature of the information and so on. Um, if somebody doesn't open the email, doesn't read the memo, doesn't hear you speaking, it's not received and that means it's not effective. If people aren't decoding what you mean accurately, then that could be another challenge. If the message is too long or it's incomplete or it's unclear, you're gonna miss stuff there. And then of course, if the message is discourteous or if the receiver of the information feels offended at what you're saying, for some reason, that could be a problem as well. So there's lots of ways for communication not to work. I'm reminded of um, during the old days, I worked as a child psychologist. And one of the important things in getting, working with parents and kids is to have, to talk to parents about making sure the kiddo is listening and looking at you before you give the instruction. Because if you say, put your clothes away and they're doing something else, they're not gonna hear you. But if you, if you say, hey, like, look at me, put your clothes away, then you know it's being heard. And that's a simplistic example for working with little kids, but sometimes it helps with grownups too around, are you listening? Okay, now I'm gonna say what I wanna say um, to make sure that there's a higher likelihood you're going to receive it effectively. So next tips are, if you have an important piece of communication you wanna talk about. So this could be a difficult conversation, this could be rolling out a new program. This could be highlighting a new policy or new option or announcing a birthday party or any kind of important communication you wanna to get together. Here's some steps to try to make that communication even more effective. So one is understand your needs and requirements. So who is it that this is going to and what is it you want to convey to them? You don't necessarily have to tell a whole story of the history of the birthday party to invite someone to a birthday party. But if there's someone where maybe you've been on the outs a little bit, you might want to frame it carefully and so understand what it is you want to convey. A second step is you might want to involve others in framing the message. So this could be especially helpful if you're sending a message out to a particular community. Uh, you may want to work with some folks in that community to make sure that the message is being conveyed in a way that people hear it to the maximum effectiveness. Of course, know your audience. Uh, if you're sending messages to your colleague saying, hey, let's stop by afternoon this afternoon and have a lemonade together, that's a very different kind of communication than if you're asking your boss for, to have lunch together so that you could talk about something important. So knowing your audience and framing your type and um, method of communication appropriately is helpful. Define clear objectives for the conversation. This one I find we don't do often enough. It's easier when uh, we have we know we're going into a negotiation situation or a difficult conversation, but whenever you have any kind of communication that's important to you, what is it you wanna get out of it? Do you want the person to just say, okay, I hear you? Do you want the person to say, you are right? Or even more, you're right and I was wrong, I'm sorry. 
What is it you want to get out of this conversation? Sometimes having that kind of a perspective can, can one, it can stop you in your tracks because if your goal is for the other person to say, you are right, I was wrong, that's probably not the best goal for this conversation, for any conversation really. Um, so that can stop you. And second, depending on what you want, if you want them to just hear it or acknowledge it or agree with you or agree to do the thing you're asking them to do, that can make it more clear around how you communicate with them and then how you know the conversation's over. Um, and then finally, the last step is to evaluate. How did that go? I think a lot of times we skip this step as well because we think I did my part. I gave the information. I'm done. And that's not the case. As, as I mentioned previously, the other person has to receive it and decode it and understand what it is that you wanted to say before the, the communication be, can be considered effective. So um, some things uh, that could be helpful would be a repeat back, depending on who you're talking to. You can say, um, uh, you know, I asked you to do X, Y, and Z. So can you repeat back to me your understanding of what I'm asking you to do? And, you know, you don't want to do it all the time or on very simple things, but if they're complex thoughts, you may want to ask them to repeat back so that you know what, that, what they're getting out of it. And that gives you an opportunity to say, oh, that was really close, but let me clarify. This is, I didn't mean that, I meant this. And then you can have an opportunity to fix um, the communication right there. All right, so we're gonna go into some specific communication situations that I would encourage you to think about situations that you might be having trouble with related to communication. And we'll have time for some Q&A at the end. Um, and again, encourage you to bring up specific situations, not specific names, don't need the names, um, but situations where maybe your communication wasn't received well, or where you're struggling to understand someone else's communication. And we can walk through together how we can maybe make those better. So the first one is managing conflict. And this is, again, conflicts everywhere. People are always going to disagree. There's not a problem with the disagreement, um, but it is a very important professional development skill to be able to work through conflict. So there are some strategies uh, to help you get more effective at managing conflict. So the first is don't ignore the problem. Now, there may be a sense of, you know, I'm going to let this go. I don't think it's a pattern. It only happened once. I'm sure they didn't mean that. You can let some things go. It doesn't mean you have to, you know, jump in and argue everything. But at the same time, if it's clear there's a problem, not ignoring it is not going to make it go away. And taking action, by which I mean have a conversation about it, can be the most effective thing you can do. You can also frame the discussion positively. I try to focus this on saying things like, I'm not sure what you meant by this, or you know, we've gotten along really well and I very much enjoy working with you. At the same time, you said something last week that kind of rubbed me the wrong way and I wanted to ask you about it. That's framing it positively and saying, I want to have this conversation to resolve the conflict. I'm not trying to make you wrong. I'm not trying to make me right. I'm just trying to figure out what's happening so that we can continue to move forward together and positively and diplomatically. Third is to focus on the issue, not the person. Now, a lot of times people throw in everything. So the, everything but the kitchen sink on their conversations. They might start with, you said this thing last week that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I'd like to understand what you're talking about. And then whatever they answer, you say, 
you know, and also two weeks ago, you said this thing. And then you also said this, and you always look at me with that tone and you always do this and you do that. So all of these extra things can kind of pile on. So try to keep it to one issue at a time and keep it on the issue, not the person. And so when you're putting it onto the person, you're making assumptions and judgments about their intent, about their perspective, about their values. And that can often derail a difficult conversation because nobody likes to have assumptions made about them. If, you, if I made an assumption that that thing you said last week that rubbed me the wrong way, well, I assume it's because you were really angry at me or you don't have to be angry at me just because you were upset that so-and-so did this thing. Like that's just going to derail the whole conversation because they're going to be upset. Wait, I wasn't angry at that. And why do you mean blah, 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 blah. it all kind of goes, goes to heck. So focus on the issue, uh, practice active listening, say your piece or ask your question and then give them a chance to talk and explain themselves without jumping in. And if you start jumping in and interrupting, then they're going to start jumping in and interrupting and then everything goes out. So practice active listening. The goal is to find a solution, not to be right, not to make them wrong, but to find a solution. And then finally, asking them for a proposed solution. Um, one of the things I like to say when it's accurate is, well, it sounds like we are about 80% in agreement. So we just have this remaining little bit to work out. How do you think we can work that out? Another way to approach it is to say, well, look, it seems like we there's a lot we don't agree on. Let's start with something we do agree on. What's one thing we do agree on? And then you can start building from there. And then it helps isolate that issue so that you can talk about that specific issue. Because if there's 80% of stuff you agree on, then it's easy when you're trying to talk about that 20% that you don't agree on to start talking about all kind of the 80% too, and then things get all messy. So try to keep it neat and clean with the issue, narrow down the issue and what exactly we're looking at. So rephrasing what's happening can also be helpful. So something like, um, so you said this thing last week that I felt was inappropriate and you're saying that you didn't intend any harm. So how do you think we can move forward from here? You know, that's a way, ask them for a solution. And then also, or, you know, I, I understand you didn't mean any harm at the same time. I really don't like it when you use that word. What do you think we can do now? And they may say, you're being ridiculous because there's nothing wrong with that word. And you can say, all right, well, I, I don't like it. Is there a way around this? What can we do? We, what can we do? All right. So those are some tips on managing conflict. So let's talk about negotiation a little bit. So effective negotiation has three parts. So usually we think negotiations about people coming to an agreement, but there's three parts. One is they come to agreement. Second is the discussion is efficient. We talked about that a little bit just now in managing conflict that we're not going all over the place, it's efficient. And third, the process doesn't damage the relationship. If you're open to having a really inefficient discussion, oof, you must have more time than I do because I don't have time for that. And also if you're open to negotiations where you damage the relationship, that's a different kind of managing things. And, and I would strongly recommend that 
even if you think you're never going to see this person again, practice having a negotiation without damaging the relationship and ideally with improving the relationship and getting closer. So there's three main ways you can approach negotiation. So one is softball negotiation. You Maybe you don't really care about the outcome or maybe you do, but you let the other person lead. You just kind of give in to whatever they want and you let them do whatever they want. They can call the shots. You're tossing them easy softballs and they're catching them. So not a lot of stress on this one. It also means you may not get what you want because you're giving into what they want. Another way to negotiate is hardball negotiation. This is where a negotiation is a competition. You want to win, they need to lose. And then unfortunately, this often raises the temperature in the room a lot, which might make you lose sight of the real goal because you get so wrapped up in winning or my ego and I want to make sure they lose and I get it all. And it's a hundred to zero and there's no room for finding any kind of middle ground here. That's often not very helpful. And honestly, it's really stressful. Um, I find it really stressful. Some people love doing this and playing hardball. That's not my not my game. Um, so if you're not playing softball and you're not playing hardball, the middle ground is principled negotiation. So this is, you're not giving into everything. You're also not trying to slam them up against the wall. You're really trying to value fairness, the relationship and resolving the problem. So in principled negotiation, you'll hear things like, I want us to get to a place that's fair, or I want us to get to a place where we both feel like we're getting a good deal. That's the kind of principled negotiation that I would recommend. So when you're looking to negotiate, first is separate the people from the problem. We talked about this before. Make it about the issue, not the person. Focus on the interest, not the position. So let me explain this a little bit. Um, a negotiation teacher that I had way back who was fabulous talked about a, a, a wonderful illustration for this issue. She said she came home from work and her husband's sitting there watching TV and she's hungry. She's been working all day and she's not happy. So she said, hey, honey, I would like dinner when I get home. And he says, no problem. So the next night she gets home from work and there's a cold pizza on the table. All right. So her position was literally dinner on the table. He met that. That was her position. But her interest was, I'd like us to talk. I'd like to have something together. I'd like to share time together. That was her interest. So he met the position, which was there was literally food on the table, but not the interest. So sometimes people are asking for one thing and what they really want is something else. So it could mean I'm asking you to pay me the salary, but my interest is in, I want to know that you value my contributions. Doesn't mean I don't want the salary. I want the salary. And I also want for you to value my contributions. So identifying what the person's interest is behind the position can often be really helpful if you focus on that as well. Um, another, another thing you can do with negotiating is to provide some general options. So I like to do this when we're talking about something. I can say, well, I see kind of three main ways we can move forward. One way is this, one way is that, and then here's a third way. 
What do you think about those? And let's talk about how we can move those forward. So providing some options to the other person could be helpful. Now, they may not like any of those options, and that's fine, but they that will give them a place to jump off of with clarifying why they don't like those options, which is still progress. Using objective criteria can be really helpful. And I mentioned salary negotiation. There's There are a lot of websites now and resources that you can go to to find out what an objective view of a salary range for a particular position would be. So if you're thinking about negotiating for a salary, a, a job or whatever, you can take a look and find out what are the criteria for what a person with my years of experience and education, et cetera, whatever, um, would, what is the range for this? And then that'll give you some information to go from. That's not just pulling numbers out of the air. It's reasonable. It, it, it's based in some objective criteria that you can then use to move the negotiation forward. It's important to know your BATNA, and BATNA is such a lovely acronym. I love this. Best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So basically, this is saying before you go into a negotiation, what's your alternative if you can't come to an agreement? So let's say you want to, I, I know salary negotiations are often very stressful for people. So let's say I go in and, and I'm thinking, all right. I don't want to take this job for less than $50,000. And if they don't give me that, I'm willing to walk away. Okay, that's good to know. So then if they offer 51 or 49 or 40 or 20, then that gives me my alternative, which is I'm willing to walk away. A challenge that a lot of people have is that either they don't know, they don't have an alternative to a negotiated agreement. They don't have a way to walk away or they don't know what their terms are for walking away. And I have absolutely painfully, I will say, walked away from situations when I felt like I wasn't getting what I deserved or I wasn't getting what I felt given the objective criteria that I should get paid or they weren't giving enough or whatever the situation is. It's hard to walk away, but it's also a good negotiation strategy to know what your limits are. You can do, you can use the objective criteria to help you with your BATNA. You can look at what your benchmarks are. And there's a whole lot, one of the uh, resources that I'll show you has a whole chart of, you know, here's the minimum I'll accept, here's the maximum. And then here's my BATNA and here's this and that. There's a lot of stuff you can do with this. If you are interested in negotiation, I very much encourage you to study, study it and try it. Um, practice, start practicing on everyday situations to negotiate for things. And then of course, remember the importance of language, that verbal communication. Positive language helps move the conversation forward. And of course, you can do everything right in your negotiation and you still might not get what you want. And that's when it's important to know when to walk away. And that's okay. It doesn't mean you failed. It means you stood up for yourself. And that's a good thing. Managing up. We have two more of these to talk about. Managing up is one. So first, we're used to managing staff who report to us or managing down, managing the people who are junior to us. But managing up, managing our bosses and our supervisors can also be important. So one of the ways to communicate 
about managing up is to know your boss's goals. Know what's important to them. Know what they, you know, if there's a monthly meeting where they need to report stuff and so you know they're always stressed out right before that meeting, that's good to know too. As much as you can learn about what's important to your boss, including their goals, you'll do better. Becoming multilingual in the workplace. And I don't mean the actual language you speak, like English or Spanish or Thai or French. I mean speaking other people's expertise. So part of what can be helpful is if you speak both physician and patient, or if you speak IT and administration. And I kind of refer to these groups like that. If you can speak finance and administration, wow, you're going to do great at having that conversation with a finance boss or with someone who's senior to you who's in that area. So the more you can understand what their situation is about, what's their lingo, how do they talk about things, the more effective you can be in managing up. Of course, you want to be authentic. Um, managing up does not mean sucking up. That is not what this means. Be who you are and also try to make things easier for your boss and that will help you be successful as well. And then of course, there are good ideas everywhere. I can imagine some of you might saying, well, my boss, I'm not gonna learn anything from my boss. I have had bosses where the only thing I learn is what not to do, like true. Like it just, it happens where there's not much, but I, I always learn something. I may have a boss where I shouldn't say that only thing I learned is what not to do. I don't like the way they're doing things. I don't think they're effective. There's all kinds of things, but boy, do they know everybody. And they know who used to be married to who and who's friends with who. And oh my gosh, that's really good. I can learn from that. There's something I can learn there, even if I don't like the kind of boss that they are. So there's good ideas everywhere. And often when we're looking to our bosses, we might only be thinking about, okay, what is it they want me to do so that I can do it and then leave? but this is always an opportunity to learn. Um, also show initiative, it should say initiative, not initiations, show initiative and solve problems. I had a boss once who said, please don't bring me a problem without bringing me a potential solution. Lesson learned, that's a good idea. Now I try to do that everywhere I go, whenever I'm talking to someone senior to me, here's a problem, here are some ways that I thought could, be, could address it. And then that gets the conversation moving. It's helpful to keep that moving. And also, if we keep bringing our bosses problems or if our staff keep bringing us problems, then we will the, the boss will be the problem solver. Nobody wants to be the problem solver. We can all be problem solvers. That way, even more gets done in a better way. And then, of course, if you can, anticipate what's coming up or anticipate what the needs are of the company or the boss. And all of this is helpful in day-to-day -day managing up. It's also especially helpful if you're looking to advance in your position and move up to a management or supervisory position because you'll learn more. The more attentive you are to what your boss and your boss's boss are doing, then the more you can learn about how to be successful as a boss yourself. Even though they might not be 100% successful in your view, you learn what to do, what not to do, and you learn from the situation. And then I love this one. Learn how your boss likes to receive information. I had a boss once who would say, I brought in a full agenda for our first meeting. And he said, no, three things, three things on the agenda. Don't bring me an agenda with more than three things on it. Okay. So the next time I brought him an agenda with three things and he said, what about this other thing? So I learned 
I bring him an agenda with three things. And then I have my backup agenda with everything on it so that I'm covered. If he wants the three things, we're good. If he wants something else, we're good. He just wants to know that I haven't forgotten anything. So I'm sharing that information in a way that works for him. Okay, so our last strategy here is persuasion. So persuasion is a process to help people see your point of view and change their behavior in a way you'd like them to change. And just as a, I just feel like I need to say, use this information for good. Do not use this for evil. Persuade people to do good things here. Persuasion, unlike negotiation and conflict management, is usually a long-term process. The other ones are short-term processes. You can handle those in an afternoon or in a couple of days. Persuasion is you're really working on this over time. And one of the most powerful phrases in persuasion is, you know, you're probably right. And then just leave it. A lot of times that silence can do a lot of work in letting them feel like you do. They might be right. Okay. And then you let it go. That can be really helpful. So some methods for persuasion. One is around framing. You can frame the issue in one way or another. And a classic example of this in political science is framing the issue of abortion as pro-choice or pro-life. Each side of the situation frames it in a way that has more meaning for them. And so that's an, they're, they're working on effectively framing their side of the issue to try to convince others to be, go along with them. You can help persuade people by talking about we, rather than you. When you talk about you, people envision the finger pointing at them and they start feeling attacked or they feel like you're, you're confronting them. It's all about we. You can even do this nonverbal here of it's about us. It's about how we do this together and moving along with the togetherness of the we or the us is more effective than talking about what you need to do. Reciprocity is sometimes helpful. You can give a little, they can give a little, and maybe you can help each other out. Kind of a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Sometimes that can help people see the validity of your position. If you wanna communicate what you're saying, be specific and confident and cut out all the filler words. So all the you knows and maybes and perhaps, and if you don't mind and all that kind of stuff, you can cut all of that out and be really specific when you're sharing with them what it is you want them to do or how you want them to change. Another persuasive method is to explain what's in it for them. And history is full of people who are opposed to something until it becomes personal, until it affects them or someone in their family, and then they change their mind and they feel differently about things. Sometimes explaining what's in it for them can help shortcut that process. There's always patience backing off and give them time to make their own decision and help them, you know, give them that time to think through it. And maybe they'll come back to you and ask. Remember, it's a long game. Persuasion is always a long game. Clarifying what's working for others. Well, a lot of other people are doing this and they like it. Or um, this is how some other people decided to proceed. And here's what they found. And you'll notice some of these things are starting to sound like commercials. That's because the commercials are trying to persuade you to buy their thing or participate in their service or do whatever. Again, your role here is to use this for good and to do more good in the world. Um, you can always use data and evidence to help your argument. And then of course, people are much more likely to be persuaded by people who like them um, than, and people who are like them. 
So any way that you can be extra friendly or get people to like you and be personable is a way to help them be persuade, help them be persuaded to do or think or feel the way you want them to. And again, only for good, only for good. Um, finally, the foot in the door, which you've probably also seen for commercial products around, have people agree to something small first, and then they're more likely to agree with you on something larger in the future. So when do you use which method? Um, managing conflict. Use this whenever something's not right. Resolve the issue. Don't let it fester. As I tell, <laughs> tell my staff and colleagues, please don't suffer in silence. If something's bothering you, tell me. Let's talk about it. I would much rather talk about it than not talk about it and have you suffer or think something else is going on. Just let's deal with it. Negotiation is helpful when you have relatively equal power as the other person or relatively equal bargaining power. And also when you're interested in the outcome. If you don't care, then you don't have to negotiate. You can just let them do whatever they want. And if you have all the power, then you can just do what you want and you don't have to really negotiate with them. But when you share power, which is a good thing, or when you have equal bargaining power and you want to, the other person to come along with you related to the outcome, negotiation can be a good strategy. Managing up, I say use this with your boss all the time. It's not controlling any more than you managing your staff or controlling your staff. It's learning what's helpful for them and working with them to communicate in the way they like to receive information, making sure you're on top of what needs to happen. There's nothing wrong with that. And then finally, persuasion is when you have time and you're invested for the long haul. That means you are willing to work on this issue over time um, and to help be patient as people may or may not come around to your way of thinking or to what it is you want them to do. All right, so basic summary is that we have verbal, written, nonverbal, and visual communication. They can help us express our ideas, our wants, our requests, but only if they're received and decoded and it's accurate and we're communicating in a way they can hear it, the part we often miss. And then finally, these communication strategies to manage conflict, negotiate, manage up, or persuade others can also help you increase your effectiveness in a work environment and I shared some information on when to use which one. So I have some resources here. If you would like to learn more about this stuff, I highly recommend it. I have found all of these enormously helpful. Persuasion, um, these two books are the, the key books, Influence Without Authority, which is really helpful about how to make change when you're not the one in charge, which for most of us is always. Um, and then Influence is also a little bit more academic, the Cohen and Bradford book is a little more practically minded, but both of them are really good. Uh, Negotiation, the Fisher and Uri getting to yes, is classic, classic book on it. Um, Babcock and Lechever talk about ask for it. This is, uh, they had a first book called Women Don't Ask and talked about the price of women not asking for things like salary raises. And then ask for it is focused more on women um, and procedures that women can use to negotiate for what they're looking for. The Manukin book, Bargaining with the Devil, is absolutely fascinating. It talks about a number of very high-risk situations like hostage negotiations. When do you ne negotiate? When do you not negotiate? And kind of focuses on that issue of when would it be inappropriate or unethical to actually negotiate? Because by negotiating, you're giving the other side some validity that maybe they don't deserve. But fascinating book. And then finally, Difficult Conversations. 
um, the classic book by Stone, Penn, and Heen, as well as Emotional Vampires and Stop Complainers and Energy Drainers. Both of those are really helpful if you have particular kinds of challenging conversations or people in your lives um, that make it difficult to, um, to be able to converse with. So those are some resources there. So what questions do you have for me about your difficult conversations? Uh, let's see. So someone asked how some examples for framing a discussion positively. Absolutely. Um, I like to frame things as a win-win or how we can work together. So here's an example. Um, there's, let's see, a staff person that I split with someone else and they need them on a big project and I need them on a big project. So there's a lot of ways to go into this and say, I need them on this project. You know, I need to have their time because my project's more important than yours. And they might say, well, my project's more important than yours. And then you're at a standstill where nothing's happening. I think framing it more positively might be, gosh, aren't we lucky to have this person who is amazing that works for both of us? And we both have these big projects happening at the same time. Are there ways that we could manage, like how could we manage this together so that we both get what we need? Maybe there are some parts of things that are on that person's plate that we could each hand off to other staff so that we could use that person for something, for only the things that only they can do. How can we make this a win-win? How can we work this together? So making sure that you frame it, not as you're wrong or the other person's gonna lose, but as how can we both win? And one of the things that I like to do with this is increase the kind of level, if you think of an organization, if it's me in finance and you in IT, you know, we don't want to turn it into a finance versus IT argument, but we can say, we both work for DOHMH. How can we do this in a way that really supports DOHMH? So we're going a level up, or how can we do this in a way that best supports clients? And you're not accusing people of not helping clients. You're just providing an option for how can we do this together? Um, let's see, uh, someone asked, I sent two emails to request their feedback on a document without them acknowledging the email or responding to my request. Um, great question, this happens all the time. What I typically do in that response is to send a note that says, hey, or dear so-and-so, um, I, I see the attached email, I requested your feedback, if I don't hear from you by such and such date, I'm going to go ahead and forward the document or send it out or whatever you need to do next. If there's any way possible to move it forward without them, you can let them know. If I don't hear from you by this date, it's amazing how many times that makes people come out of the woodwork and provide feedback. If you can't move it forward without them, if you cannot move it forward without them, then you can say something like, "We, hi, we discussed this document needing to be turned in by August 30th. Since I haven't heard from you, we're not going to be able to meet that deadline. Could you please advise how you'd like me to proceed? And then it's off your plate. So hopefully that addresses the situation. Thank you for fantastic questions and good luck with your effective communication. It's a process. <laughs> Take care.